she's the sunny to my overshare, Franny Choi. <laughs> and their password for machofuckers.com is uppercase D-A, and I'm just kidding, it's the Smith. <laughs> <laughs> You're listening to Verses, the podcast where poets confront the ideas that move them. Brought to you by the Poetry Foundation and Post Loudness. Quick little side note, remind me to tell you my critiques of machofucker.com. Oh my gosh, yeah. I forgot that that was an actual porn site. It is one of the greatest that has fallen from grace in such a major way. Oh my god. Um, How are you feeling? I'm doing okay, I'm doing good, Mm -hmm. you know, good to be here in the Mm -hmm. great state of Illinois. In the great state of Illinois, not that great, don't let them know that. I mean. It's not better than Minnesota. Oh, them's some words. Yeah, I mean, I feel like Minnesota is the best state. We have Interesting. lakes and trees, and I like our white people sometimes more than other white people. Really? And yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. I appreciate a, a faux sense of politeness. Helps you get through it. Helps you get through. We have Prince, um, and I sure. have unreasonable opinions about people from Wisconsin because I'm from Minnesota. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I feel like my years living in Rhode Island mm-hmm. gave me quite an oversized amount of Rhode Island pride. Mm-hmm. And I also, I think, an appreciation for like... The rudeness of white strangers, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> actually. The rudeness of white strangers. Yeah, yeah, you know, there's like a particular kind of like rude white bus driver that I just like love. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm very into it. I, I like, a, I, I like it a New York rude white. Of. Yeah. Yeah. You know? You know? Love a cranky Italian. Love a cranky Italian. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like a delicious sandwich. <laughs> cranky Italian. Can I get a cranky Italian on ciabatta? Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this whole state pride thing is like, I don't know. It's sort of silly, right? It's silly. State borders are maybe one of the only silly borders. But it also, again, it highlights the absurdity of all imaginary lines Mm. that are highly militarized and policed Mm -hmm. and that people die trying to get across, Mm. you know? Mm -hmm. I think it's an absurdity. That doesn't mean it's not high stakes, you know? Yeah. And I think that there's something about the work of our guest today, Mm -hmm. Daniel Borzutsky, that... uh, manages to capture both the high stakes of a place like the border and a mm-hmm. concept like the border um, while not shying away from also like the kind of strangeness and absurdity mm. um, of institutions like a border. Amen, you know? amen, amen. Daniel is a poet and translator, mm-hmm. author of many collections, including the most recent like Michigan and the National Book Award winning The Performance of Becoming Human. Yeah. Um, and we're really excited to get into this interview with him. He's going to start us off with a poem and then stay tuned for more brilliance on the other side of that. Yeah, let's get into it. So I will uh, read a couple scenes, 10 and 11 from Lake Michigan, which is the beginning of the the second act. Lake Michigan is divided into um, two acts and uh, 19 scenes. And there are uh, two epigraphs that begin uh, Act Two, the first from the uh, Chicago economist Milton Friedman, who says, quote, The great virtue of a free market system is that it does not care what color people are. It only cares whether they can produce something you want to buy. It is the most effective system we have discovered to enable people who hate one another to deal with one another and help one another. And the second from uh, Pablo Neruda from his uh, poem about the Spanish Civil War, uh, Explico algunas cosas, I explain a few things. Y por las calles la sangre de los niños corría simplemente como sangre de niños. Mm. Uh, And through the streets, uh, the blood of children ran simply like the blood of children. Mm -hmm. Lake Michigan, scene 10. The police shooting boys are like police shooting boys, and the Nazis burning Jews are like Nazis burning Jews, and the police protecting Nazis are like police protecting Nazis, 
and the prisoners who are tortured are like prisoners who are tortured, and the psychologists overseeing torture are like psychologists overseeing torture, and the mayor privatizing prisons is like the mayor privatizing prisons, and the rule of law being suspended is like the rule of law being suspended, and the broken prisoners on the beach are like broken prisoners on the beach. I dream I am pregnant, and my baby is a revolutionary plan to destroy the global economy. And my baby is like a baby with a bullet in its mouth, who's like a baby with a bullet in its mouth, who's like a baby with a bullet in its mouth. And the disappearing public employees are like disappearing public employees. And the puddle of vomit from a tortured prisoner is like a puddle of vomit from a tortured prisoner. And the hunger of an actual child is the hunger of an actual child. And the basic function of the economy is the basic function of the economy. And the politically impossible is the politically inevitable. And the bourgeois savages are like bourgeois savages. And the bourgeois savages who do not see themselves as savages are like bourgeois savages who do not see themselves as savages. And the bodies that are expropriated for private purposes are like bodies expropriated for private purposes. And when they disappear into the pinhole of capital, they disappear into the abyss of capital. And when they disappear into the abyss of capital, there is that silence when everyone refuses to act because they are too concerned with their own material health to care about the broken body of another. And the wasted food on the beach is like wasted food on the beach. And the starving children who are not allowed to eat the wasted food on the beach are like starving children who are not allowed to eat wasted food on the beach. And the bourgeois savages do not notice the broken bodies until they are beaten in their bourgeois backyards. And they say, how dare you use my backyard to beat this broken body? I will look away if only you don't beat them in my backyard. And they say, one broken body in my backyard doesn't count for anything. And they are like people who think that one broken body doesn't count for anything. And a massacre at a black church is a massacre at a black church. And a massacre at an elementary school is a massacre at an elementary school. And the Nazis with torches are like Nazis with torches. And the police who kill are like police who kill. And the dying sand is like dying sand. And the refugee arrested for speaking the wrong language is a prisoner who never learns to speak the right language. And the bomb is like a bomb and the anesthetic is like anesthetic. And the blankness of the city is like the blankness of the city. And the language of the riot is the language of the riot. And the blood of the silenced is like the blood of the silenced. And the blindness of the bourgeois savage is like a mouth that can't stop biting a body that refuses to die. Mm. Like Michigan, scene 11. Fifteen men around a van from the Department of Streets and Sanitation. The men push from the side and back. The van is rocking up and down. It is starting to tip. More men come to the side. Nine pushes and it bounces, but it doesn't quite flip, and a bunch of men will walk away as a horn blares loudly as if telling the men to stop. The mechanics of flipping a van over push until it's bouncing, and once it bounces high enough, lift from the bottom. Eleven more pushes and the van falls over onto the driver's side, and there is a celebratory whoop as the men walk away, knowing that no one is ahead of his time. A riot is a thing that decides how it is to be done. And who among these men wants to consider the very long history of how he has never acted or how he has never felt? What do they see when they look at the flipped-over van? The flipped-over van, the long pole busting the glass, the fire and the smoke bombs, the men and women with scarves over their faces taking what they can from the municipal vehicles. The war that has formed their relationship to the composition of the city. The war that has formed the police officers' punitive relationship to the bodies that occupy the city. The innocence of rudimentary violence is the devouring power of negation. Who are the bodies when the bodies are not flipping over the van? What do they wish to compose when they are not composing the destruction of the city? 
What do they feel about the city and its refusal to absorb them? What do they feel about the state and its desire to spit them out? How will they be absorbed and how will they be ejected? There's distribution and there is despair and there are the things we decide to see when we look and the things we decide to see when we shield our eyes from the pain. What else is there to be done once the van has been flipped over? What steps do we need to take to create lasting structural changes in our neighborhood, our city, our nation? How many vans should be flipped over and in what order? They ponder these questions with screams, flames, and poles jammed into the glass of cars and storefronts, jammed into the burden to transact, compose, destroy. Thanks, Daniel. We are really excited to be in the studio today with Daniel Borzutsky. So the first question that we want to ask you, Daniel, is uh, what is moving you these days? Um, I'm excited to be here. Thank you guys for having me. You know, I mean— I'm thinking of moving as being like physically moved and being shaken and being compelled to, I don't know, um, not be comfortable in my body. Hmm. Inevitably, I don't know if it's these days, but I'm I'm, I'm figuring out how to kind of um, deal with the like everyday horror of right now, um, what, the ways in which we are treating immigrants. Hmm. And in many ways, that's been like a subject in my writing for a very long time, but mm-hmm. it, it sort of hasn't made it any easier for me to process in um, different ways. And over the last month, right, this is like obsessive talk about the wall, right, mm-hmm. which has been this like utter distraction from like actual human rights violations that mm-hmm. are happening all the time. That is really central and um, how I'm I'm feeling about where we are right now. Yeah. Mm. Have you seen, like, this idea of the wall and, like, that conversation moving in your writing at all? Or is it just, like, part of this, like, long, ongoing, like, trajectory? Yeah, I mean, in some ways it's part of a long, ongoing trajectory. And in other ways, it's so certainly I was thinking about it in the border as mm-hmm. um, a site of conflict. More directly, yes. I mean, I, I've actually wrote a poem about the wall, uh, but um, but have also just um, have a kind of been thinking a lot about the desert as the site of uh, incarceration, of um, mm-hmm. of of human rights abuse, of um, the abuse of children, and and so that sort of space, uh, both of those spaces, a incarcerating space and a and a. Um, degrading space mm-hmm. has has been present in a lot of my newer writing too. Mm. Yeah. Can we talk about one of the poems that you read just now? Sure. Yeah, I feel like really moved by the like kind of central operating mechanism of the first scene that you read, the mm-hmm. one that opens Act Two. Can you talk about like what led you into that piece and like um, what you're doing there and what you're thinking through in that poem? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, so on the one hand, there's the quote by by Milton Friedman that I read, mm-hmm. which I, I, I kind of want to emphasize that um, the Chicago that I'm talking about is a Chicago of um, extreme neoliberal capital, mm-hmm. uh, and um, and the kind of irony of this economist on the south side of Chicago surrounded by um, racialized poverty, proposing the idea that uh, the free market was somehow going to be a um, way to get people of different races to stop hating each other. Yeah, that's wild. Um, Imagine yeah. living in such a world. It's um, like that. that ideology, right, is um, 
in many ways central to the Chicago that that we we live in. Yeah. And then the other, you know, the 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 quote by Neruda is is I think just thinking about a kind of um anti-metaphoric way mm. of depicting violence, right? Mm-hmm. And um calling things what they are and mm-hmm. and kind of um thinking about maybe the limitations of poetic language, right? Mm-hmm. When it resorts to how we talk about extreme violence, right? Mm-hmm. And so I think this might have been one of the later pieces that I wrote in this book, and there's a sort of conjunction of many things happening. I mean, the sort of larger context of the book um, has to do with police violence in Chicago, but I remember writing this around the time that the Nazi demonstrations in Charlottesville were happening, and then I was also reading uh, Aimé Césaire. And those sort of conjunction of things um, all came together, right? And 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 here we were listening to conversations about whether or not uh, there were good Nazis, right? <laughs> um, like uh, plot twist, no. Yeah. What yeah. timeline we are um, in, right? Uh, and that this is like a um, sort of rational thing that we are supposed to like actually um, mm-hmm. debate or something like that. And so the the just fusion of those things of a kind of extreme capitalism being, um, I don't know, conjoined with an extreme um, racism Mm -hmm. was, I think, on the one hand, very central to Chicago, central to the United States, but maybe central to the sort of language I was trying to um, Mm -hmm. piece together. Mm -hmm. You know, this poem and the kind of like mechanics of this poem is, you know, one way of tackling that problem of the limitations of metaphor to talk about violence. But it's also, like, such a central question and, and like, problem and limitation that I think the the, the book is coming up against again and again. Um, what are some of the other strategies that you were employing to try to wrestle with that? Mm-hmm. If you had asked me that about the performance of Becoming Human, mm-hmm. I would have said that I, I was using a kind of, like, Meta poetic strategy mm-hmm. where I was maybe not depicting violence directly, mm-hmm. but was rather kind of talking about the ways in which we observe and are um, absorbed by uh, and talk about uh, violence, and that that was a um, kind of strategy that that was happening throughout the book. Mm-hmm. In this one, yeah, I mean, I think something different happened in this book, which is there are sort of like a I body and a we we bodies mm-hmm. that are like um, actually experiencing violence in different forms, right? Mm-hmm. What I was thinking about was the ways in which the city is itself the site and the scene and the victim of violence, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And that, like, what does it mean that, you know, I don't know, a police officer shoots somebody around the corner from your house, Mm -hmm. right? That's clearly different than um, being shot by a police officer, and it's clearly different than being, you know, the family member of the victim or loved one or whatever. But that's also a trauma that, that, let's say, your entire neighborhood has to deal with, like, Mm -hmm. all of the time, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think that was one of the ways that I was trying to conceive of the book, right? And 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 I want to do it like very carefully. Mm-hmm. Um because obviously it's it's it is very different to be the victim, the direct victim of violence. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, I do want to say that there is a way in which if you choose to look, right, which is part of what's happening in that mm-hmm. book, it is um happening to us. Mm-hmm. If you're a poet who 
acknowledges that the world is on fire, then you really have to think about what tools am I going to use to sort of tend to the fire that I'm paying attention to or the fires that I'm paying attention to. So between Lake Michigan and the performance of Becoming Human, there is this really strong voice and style and sort of sense of character that I think comes across in the books that I think is heightened in Lake Michigan when you get into like the acts and scene structures. So I'm wondering, how do you find sort of that consistent, maintained voice or character study kind of that you're doing with the the language of the poetics? How does that feel useful to you as you're trying to like tend to the things that the books are tending to? Mm -hmm. I mean, there's a kind of like craft answer to that question, which is a lot of it is... Give me the craft and then give me like the real shit. (laughs) (laughs) Well, (laughs) the sort of craft question in Lake Michigan is one of like um, sound and rhythm in Mm -hmm. a certain way and like editing the shit out of the book um, (laughs) until the voice becomes a consistent thing, right? Mm -hmm. It's starting off a little bit more desperate when you're sort of instilling like the... Yeah, actually, I mean, starting off like more messy in this book, certainly. Like Mm -hmm. like it was much longer and the Mm -hmm. scenes were kind of much more convoluted and Mm -hmm. there were like characters with relationships and, you know, um, shit like that that got like axed out of it in a Hmm. kind of way that was it was like this um, trying to figure out like the rhythmic intensity Mm -hmm. to match the um, kind of intensity of experience Mm -hmm. and to make that a I don't know, a kind of sonic event in some mm. ways as well. Come on, myself. sonic event. Okay, um, okay. I like that. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think the the other part of your question is harder, and I don't know if I, I, I know how to answer it. I don't know about what to say about the kind of lyric speaker in this book. I think maybe I try to do that through a kind of like choral wee voice mm-hmm. that um, is threaded throughout. There is this um, sort of communal character that mm-hmm. is developing throughout, which maybe is kind of um, parallel to the kind of communal nature of, of of what I was talking about before with, with the, the sort of city being the kind of like victim of, mm-hmm. of a certain kind of, you know, violence and trauma. Can we talk about this sonic event a little more? <laughs> <laughs> I just always want to like wear a sonic event. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I love the idea of like rhythmic intensity as a way of making a poem a thing that can kind of like live up to the event that spurred mm. the poem, you know? Mm-hmm. It's a failing project, right? It's like never gonna, <laughs> sure. never going to do that. Um, Love a failing project. Um, on the other <laughs> hand, you know, all we can do is try in, in a yeah. certain way. I think at the reading level, right, like I don't want to read anything that like doesn't like sound good to me, mm-hmm. right? Totally. And I'm sure like I have a definition of what sound good means, right? It's obviously like project and book specific, but I will put books down if it doesn't sort of carry me in a way that 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 like I'm kind of internalizing the rhythm of the writing mm-hmm. in a kind of way. And so I think as I've grown as a writer, uh, as I've grown as a writer, I've like learned to care more about my audience, which simply means like if somebody's going to read your book, they're like investing their time and sometimes their money and mm-hmm. emotional energy mm-hmm. in in your work, right? And so um, that sonic idea that I'm talking about is like one that I'm thinking about all the time as I'm editing. Like what is the experience of reading this book going mm-hmm. to be like? And in some ways that idea becomes like at the editing stage becomes much less about like ideas in our content than it does about rhythm. Hmm. I'm sort of reading out loud all of the time Hmm. and like looking for as much to cut as possible and as much to kind of um, shorten as possible as like trying to get as many, rid of as many words as Hmm. I could. So you edit for rhythm. I I, I 
think so. I mean, I, I'm yeah, sure yeah. like other writers, I, I don't know that that's rare, but yes, I, yeah. I think that it, I, I, t- I definitely read Edit for Rhythm and Sound. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. so interesting. I find it hard to edit for, for sound. Really? Yeah. I feel like Ish. the sound comes in the first draft of the thing, and then I have to like work hard not to lose the rhythm. Oh, I think of you have like such a sound-based poet. That's so weird to me. Yeah, but I think that comes with a with a first draft. I think like hmm. I'm trying to preserve the rhythm when I oh, edit. Oh, okay. Do you ed- edit for rhythm? I feel like I edit for rhythm and sound. Oh, like, interesting. Or at least that's how I know the poem is headed in the right direction. I think I can like sort of sometimes like work on like intensity of like image and stuff like that. Yeah, but yeah. I think the ultimate thing I'm looking for is like the flow in a rapper's mind of like how do I get this thing to sort of sound the best and I and how do I like make this poem the same in like every mouth and brain that huh. it is. Like how can I make my meter as clear yeah. as possible? Yeah. That know. makes total sense to me. I just like I had it for making it look cute. You had it for cute. Yeah, I had it for cuteness, for sure. <laughs> Definitely had it for cuteness. Gotta hit them Instagram filters. <laughs> you were talking about um, the desert as a site of incarceration earlier. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That sparks a few different thoughts in my mind. One, I think like that framework is new and enlightening to me. Because there's a difference between trap and incarceration, you know? Mm-hmm. Especially so, when I think like culturally, I think deserts have always kind of been a source of like either kind of lostness, but also, like, spiritual freedom. Yeah. yeah, migration, but also, like, this sort of, like, wandering into this great unknown rather yeah, yeah. than being, like— but I guess it's also, like, a sentencing into the desert mm. as well. That's also—I mean, I don't know. I guess we're th- thinking probably biblically and, and shit. But mm. um, that's one. That's just, like, fascinating to me. But then also, this is such a, a place-based— project. One, I guess, like, a very basic question of, like, why the lake? Mm-hmm. And, like, how does place operate in 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 your work? So I want to go back to the desert. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Chicago. Yes. And they're both kind of related because at some point I'd been thinking a lot both in poems and in different essays that I'd written about the kind of interconnections between um, Chile, where my family's from, and Chicago. Mm-hmm. The desert uh, as this site of of disappearance mm-hmm. was was mm-hmm. something for me that was um, hemispheric continuum um, that was was happening between uh, I don't know Chile and the Southern Desert, right? Mm-hmm. So famously, the military dictatorship would um, disappear bodies in the desert, mm-hmm. and there were also prisons in the desert mm-hmm. as well. I remember reading this New York Times article, I think in 2013, that talked about all the unidentified bodies in the Arizona desert. Mm-hmm. And at the time, that, that summer, it was something like 650 mm-hmm. unidentified bodies. Again, it's like I, I try to be really careful about talking about scales, right? Like there is very different scales of violence, right? But it just, for me, it was a sort of linkage, right? This mm-hmm. was um, two places where bodies were literally disappearing. And so like my initial thinking about how Chicago and Chile were related was originally based in economy. Famously, Milton Friedman and the Chicago Boys designed the economy or, uh, it, that, that um, the dictatorship implemented. Uh, and it was one of the sort of first um, neoliberal privatization-based experiments that um, was happening, right? It was their chance to, to try out these ideas because they had a um, oppressed population that was uh, too um, scared and traumatized to speak out, right? Mm-hmm. So that included um, mass privatizations of public services, privatizations of public education, of health care, of social security, of um, destroying labor unions, 
So in 2012, the Chicago Teachers Union had a um, strike, and it was mm-hmm. their first strike in 27 years. And in Chile, there at the time had been a year-long um, student strike at both the high school and the college level. If we take race out of the picture, the, the issues were um, very similar. They were both about the privatization of public education. You know, in Chicago, for instance, uh, Rahm Emanuel at the time that famously closed 50 neighborhood schools, right? And in Chile, they have uh, eliminated as much as possible public education at the elementary school level. Mm-hmm. In Chicago, they were replacing many of those schools with privately run charter schools. Chile has a voucher system. The effect of that has been something like, I don't know the numbers, but it's something like 20 to 30 percent of students in Chile go to to public schools. Um, So I was just kind of struck by the fact that this um, education policy and privatization policies were linked between Chicago and Chile. And then in 2015, we started getting reports about um, Home and Square in Chicago, which was a prison um, that they refer to as a black site where prisoners were being disappeared, um, essentially like prisoners were being taken there and not registered. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, for several days, they might be there. Uh, apparently, people have known about the site for a long time, but uh, these investigations in The Guardian brought it to light, right? And so um, – the term black site is certainly a, a racialized one. 90% of the prisoners there were um, African-American. There are cases of torture. One person died. And of course, again, like the, the scale of disappearance is very different between Chicago and Chile. But the fact that we were now talking about prisons in Chicago where torture and disappearance was happening, which is, again, something torture in Chicago and the police began in the 70s. Mm-hmm. Um, as did the military dictatorship. But this kind of notion of disappearance was one that made me think about the interconnection between economic policy and over-policing. At the end of the performance of Becoming Human, there's a poem that takes place on a prison site and on the lake. And again, I was kind of thinking about Chile because there were prisons on military ships that were kind of parked along beaches. Um, But uh, I was thinking about the lake as um, a place of... Violence and mm-hmm. the lake represents all of these contradictions. So, on the one hand, the lake is beautiful. On the other hand, it's, I don't know, polluted and um, <laughs> diseased, right? Like it's closed down um, many um, throughout the um, summer, often because uh, of bacteria in the water. Um, we think of it as being a natural site, but it's actually like an artificially constructed site. The landfill along the lake uh, was created from um, destroyed houses from the west side of Chicago uh, so that shit. were brought over to the lake, right? So, like, the the beauty of the lake is literally built on the... Um, destruction of the uh, west side. On the destruction of the west side of Chicago, right? It's a kind of site of segregation. Right now, it's a site of um, water privatization issues as well, right? Mm-hmm. So, I think the lake signifies really deeply all of these many... Uh, mm-hmm complex contradictions that happen in Chicago. You know, you talked about all of these interconnections that came out between Chilean politics and Chicago politics, et cetera, you know, things that were happening at the same time in the news even um, and the the connections that those led you to make. Mm -hmm. How does poetry fit into how you understand these interconnected things that you encounter in the world. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I've done a little bit of essay writing where I sort of think about it more mm-hmm. analytically. Yeah. 
I mean, okay, on, on one level, poetry is like this way of making art out of it, right? Yeah, and yeah. that's fraught with all kinds of uh, problems, but like it's what we do. Yeah. And on another level, to me, rather than making sense of, of, of it, I would say it's like a way of documenting these things that are happening communally, right? But it's also like a... I don't know, a form of documentation of, of uh, the various um, capitalist shitholes we live in. An American story. <laughs> <laughs> An American lyric. An Bible. American lyric. Fuck. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> oh, God damn. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> we just attach that to everything. Yeah. <laughs> just yeah. That. Scrambled eggs, an American lyric. Can we talk about some of that new work? Yeah, yeah let's, sure, yeah, sure, let's yeah. move to, to that. What are you What are you making? The new book right now is called Written After a Massacre in the Year 2018. Mm-hmm. That title came later in the year. Mm-hmm. Um, but certainly um, I was thinking about, again, like various forms of violence and mm-hmm. how we kind of respond to them both sort of immediately, personally, culturally. So that's part of it. I think there's a few different – Things that are happening in the book, there's kind of ideas of, of border conflict happening both in the U.S., but also one of the starting places for this book was a um, border conflict over a block of ice between Chile and Argentina in Patagonia mm. that I don't think anybody occupies <laughs> uh, mm. and uh, had been going on um, for a very long time at one point. Um, it almost evolved into a kind of war where I'd read something like the Argentine military had brought coffins to the border in the event that uh, it turned into a kind of um, uh, international conflict. So that I was thinking a lot about um, <laughs> that idea of border conflict as a sort of way of provoking different kinds of nationalism mm-hmm. and then the kind of ramifications of those things. I'm also like fascinated between sort of borders in the United States, mm-hmm. like borders between states mm-hmm. and I like the sort of notions of state identities. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I mean, like, we have some friends who like love being from Ohio. <laughs> And then we have friends who think Chicago is a state. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, you know, so in Performance Becoming Human, there were like mm-hmm. all these pieces that like took place on the border between Indiana and Illinois that I was sort of That's like, imagining wow. a, a, a conflict between and just like fascinated by um, the Gary Chicago Wars. Yeah. The notion that we are somehow identified with our states. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's very funny. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so anyway, different kinds of border conflict was a starting point. And then in the fall, it maybe coalesced a little bit more following the um, shooting at the Tree of Life Synagogue in Pittsburgh, mm. which is where I grew up and which was the synagogue that I grew up going to. Mm. I'm sort of tentative to talk about it and haven't really talked about it um, publicly, but I've mm. certainly been writing about it. Mm. But uh, has, you know, directly affected um my community and people I know. And again, like I've been writing and thinking about these things for a really long time, but like I was just totally unprepared for what I was going to feel when that happened. Mm-hmm. And so I think since, you know, the couple months after that, more like a means of me trying to kind of write through that, write with that experience, mm-hmm. I don't know, in mind in a certain way. What is it about, like, the year 2018 as kind of, like, this constraint? What's appealing about that? Oh, it's fucking awful. Um, <laughs> it was just, like, a just awful, shitty year, like, yeah, over and over yeah. again. Like, the <laughs> amount 
of types of violence, uh, the um, politics uh, of the year, the sort of personal effect on me and like, mm-hmm. you know, many people I knew. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think part of it is like, I <laughs> just w- was like a way of like wanting to be done with the year so as to exercise <laughs> the year 2018 from my yeah, life. Totally. I remember like in November or something when someone was like, hey, y'all, Black Panther came out this year and everyone was like, fuck, this year felt so long. Hmm. Um, I don't want to say this to be like, oh yeah, 2018, we all too. But like also kind of, I mean, I think that like for so many people, 2017 was sort of like the urgency of like dealing with the shock of that regime coming into power. And then 2018 has been the first like, living in this like mm. in this new kind of like chapter of the yeah. of the dumpster fire of America. Yeah, like living without a reprieve from the grief, right? Right. Mm-hmm. Or living without like, oh, the women's march is coming up like, you know, here and then like here's everyone like, you know, getting together to write letters to their Congress people or whatever, like cropping up of like a million kind of like socially act- activist groups per hour. I guess it's like the post-emergency year, 2018. Yeah. I mean, so I'm always like careful to um try to you know, the Trump presidency didn't come out of nowhere. And of it's like, you know, yeah. we've been evolving um, towards it. Uh, and, you know, lots of other years were yeah. uh, shitty years too, right? But yeah, I think the like emboldenedness of racists in the year 2018, mm-hmm. yeah. right, um, and was just um, shocking yeah. over and over again, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. And we just kept seeing, you know, incident after incident that was somehow seemed like uh, – Race violence was um, being granted a like permissiveness. Mm-hmm. Yeah, any year where one has to encounter the forgiveness of Nazis again and again <laughs> seems like a bad year for the books. I think you know, in chronicling a year of violence in mm-hmm. that way, um, I think in one way it can kind of just become like archive. But I'm also wondering, like, what have you learned from that archival process? Like, have were any mm-hmm. new things about 2018 or sort of the state that? our states are in was revealed to you sort of in that chronicling of that year. Mm-hmm. Again, I think to be personal as somebody who um, identifies as both Latino and Jewish, right? Um, I had been thinking a lot about immigration and the way Spanish speakers are treated uh, mm-hmm. in the U.S. I guess I don't talk about the ways in, in which I identify as Jewish being uh, all that much, mm-hmm. right? But – 2018 definitely um, <laughs> made me think and deal with the fact that uh, there's still a lot of people who want to kill Jews, mm-hmm. right? And that that's just a reality that is as local as possible, mm-hmm. right? Like when it like hits the place that you grew up going to and your neighborhood and people you know, there's no way around um, dealing with that, mm-hmm. right? And so I think that was a reinforcement of something that was maybe sort of latent in my mind. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm just so drawn back to the title, writing after a massacre. I mean, in some ways, those words next to each other kind of like highlights the sort of like, I don't want to say futility, but, you know, writing and massacre are just like acts on such different scales, you know? Mm -hmm. Maybe this is like another version of the same question we've been like kind of talking around this whole time, but like, how do you write after a massacre? (laughs) I guess is the question. I mean, you know, uh, 
historically it's not unique, right? right. Like mm-hmm. it's more like what you choose to pay attention to. Mm-hmm. And um, I guess on the one hand, perhaps carefully, uh, yeah. but on the other hand, it's like, um, how do you not? Like yeah. we're always yeah. like, like it was just like per- that's in some sense a permanent condition, <laughs> but the choosing of material and the choosing of what to focus on and that sort of problematics of like thinking that um, poetry is the response that you're choosing to use. Then I don't know that is 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 present. But I guess again, I think the question for me is more like I don't know how not to. Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. And it's not even a writing about a you know necessarily. That's it's writing after. And I think mm-hmm. that that feels to me like an important kind yeah. of distinction. Even if even if it is about you know yeah. that feels like an important kind of like reminder to to all poets that that is the context that we are all writing mm-hmm. in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Can we talk a little bit about the translation work that you've been doing? Oh, sure. Yeah. What's the translation project that you're working on and how are you feeling Sure, yeah. yeah. Um, this project that I started last year but that I've kind of had the time now to, to work on, um, which is a book by a Chilean poet named Paula Ilabaca. I-L-A-B-A-C-A. I think it will be her first translations into English. Uh, the book is called La Perla Suelta, or The Loose Pearl. And it's a kind of book-length poem. Um, I could talk about the book, but it, but it's been really um, nice for me to like feel uh, immersed in a, in a translation project, um, which I haven't done in a while. And it's uh, it's been making me happy. Yeah. What feels nice about that? I mean, one, the work is really good. So there's mm-hmm. there's that, right? I mean, part of what I like about translation is like the intense experience you have with other people's writing, which mm-hmm. you really like, mm-hmm. right? And it makes me like learn a lot about different ways of writing and thinking, but it's also just um, one of the things I like about translation is that it's not about me. Uh, and <laughs> it's like an opportunity for me to not be in my voice. Mm-hmm. That's one of the pleasures of translation. Mm-hmm. It seems like a good way to engage with poetry without having to dive into the like the deepest root of your soul <laughs> all the time. Yeah. yeah, I mean, in some ways I feel more responsible for it than I do for my own work. Totally. So there's, there's, there's that inner experience, yeah. right? But, but, it's, but the responsibility is not towards like mm. being true to me. Right, right? yeah. It's um, a way of being really involved in writing that is, um, th- is, is not about me. Mm. Um, but I think there's also just political dimensions to translation as well, mm. right? I mean, one in True. the sort of context of a moment where um, language and for being foreign is is criminalized, right? I think translation uh, becomes more and more important. On the one hand, I'm translating a Chilean experience, right? But it's mm. also um, translating uh, something that is directly connected to um United States foreign policy and mm. to Chicago and to, um, you know, my own kind of shared identity between Chicago and Chile in certain ways, right? So um, I think there is, you know, some kind of on a subconscious level, kind of language patterns um, go into your and syntactical structures like enter into your kind of writing um, mm. in kind of ways that are not, that are not um, easily tangible. Mm. Um there's a new collection of essays about um, Marxist readings of uh, contemporary Latino writing. Mm. And one of the things that he notes 
I was reading at three in the morning as I, as I was not able to sleep last night, um, <laughs> was that I write a lot about light and love uh, and that those two words are kind of like words that are um, taboos in American poetry uh, and that he was sort of citing that as something that I had taken from my engagement with Chilean writers who- Do you think so, that's true? That that's you know, I mean, I wouldn't have put it that way and I wouldn't have thought about it, but perhaps, yeah. yeah. Um, cool. I, I mean, I liked it. I, I, yeah. It was one of those things where I like like- the criticism is telling you something about mm-hmm. your own work that you would not Love have identified. That. That's so fun when that <laughs> right. happens. Like, um, oh, that's who I am. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, no, and then another like interesting thing that he notes too uh, is the amount of children that appear in my work. Yeah. Um, so I think there is stuff like that, right? Like where he's he's correct that I think like a kind of lyrical strategy of talking about violence and love at the same time is maybe something <laughs> that um, my engagement with Chilean Poetry, mm. poetry and translation has um, mm. filtered into my own work. Yeah. One of the things that is important to me is that my influences are not necessarily ones from the United States, yeah. right? Mm. That yeah. that's not necessarily like the, the, the writers who have been most important to me. And mm-hmm. that while I'm very much talking about the United States all of the time, I'm thinking about it through different lenses. Mm-hmm. And, and there's sort of another thing that like – I don't know. When people talk about the long lines in my work, they mm-hmm. talk about Whitman, right? They always related to Whitman. Yeah. No, and, and like Whitman is not a writer who's been particularly important to me, but mm-hmm. like Zurita and Neruda have talked about Whitman as being important to them. And I really mm-hmm. like the idea of like that's, yeah, that's me cool. sort of being influenced by Whitman um, through South American writing. Totally. Um, so, totally. so I don't know. Those kind of um, – cross-national connections, I think, are are ones that I like a lot. Yeah. Does it feel different to read poems in Spanish? What do you mean? I don't even know. But, like, I— I I think so. I mean, I don't know if it's because, like, some of the rules are just different or if it's because of something about my relationship with the language. But there's something that feels different about reading poetry in Korean to Mm -hmm, me. mm Mm-hmm. Spanish speakers or people from Spanish-speaking backgrounds in the U.S. um, tend to feel like a sense of um, kind of shame or embarrassment around their, like, um, abilities or lack thereof to, you know, speak or read in Spanish. You know, I didn't take formal Spanish classes, right? Mm -hmm. And um, I didn't have, like, grammar training, right? Mm -hmm. So, like, learning how to write in Spanish, it's so, like, something that's uncomfortable for me. Mm -hmm. I think that that's important important for uh, at least uh, Latinx people in the United States to like mm-hmm. this kind of like shame about the difficulty of uh, encountering all your, you know, your heritage language in that way. So there's there's that part of it, which is like a psychological thing. And then I think there's like syntactical and language-based things, which, which you notice a lot as you are translating. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So on every episode, we like to play a little little game situation um, called This Versus That, but we are going to give you two uh, places, people, things, juices, whatever, when any noun comes to us, um, and ask you who would win in a game of fisticuffs, all right? For today is This Versus That. In this corner, we have lakes, and in that corner, we have deserts, not to be confused with desserts. <laughs> um, so who's going to win in a fight? It's a desert. Why? <laughs> because it's much less comfortable than the lake. 
<laughs> oh, so the so the the game is what will kill a man. <laughs> what will kill a man? <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. All right, all right, cool. All right, fuck them lakes. Well, I mean, I'm, I'm answering it more like how, what would I rather do, like drown or die in the desert? And you know, drown, I would rather drown than die in the desert. All right. Well, that was another uh, fun. <laughs> another rousing edition of our silly little game. We can just say there's no political implications in this like version. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is this is like a purely kind of like Settlers of Catan version of this question. Oh, I really want to go play Catan now. Okay. I just bought the Catan and the expansion pack. Five to six players, beach. Oh, okay, that expansion pack. Okay, uh-huh. never mind. I have other questions. Right, oh, no, cool. not the like seafarers or you the play, barbarians one. That make one makes me uncomfortable. You gotta play the cities and knights one. That's the real one. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Also seafarers is tight. Did you, could you close this out with another, <laughs> with a, with another poem? Send us home? Sure. Send. Um, are these drawings that your son did? No, those are drawings that I did. Amazing! <laughs> I'm sorry. But, but actually, check this one, this one, somebody gave me at a poetry reading. Actually. Oh my god! Um, Is that a dinosaur? A little kid who was dragged there by his mother or father, <laughs> um, and it says, "I love poet tree." So there's a dog for, yeah, really for those of you at home. But it's like a scaly, uh, it's like a it's like a dog mixed with like a triceratops. Yeah. yeah. So <laughs> there's like a dinosaur dog with a collar. It's actually really beautiful. Um and like a kind of beagly looking dog with a heart that says, I love poet trees so much. It's and, like then, a pretty and then there's sort of dog. scenes in the desert. I think you know what your next and cover is. Steady hands. Pretty cool. I better get and I made him sign it for me. So this uh is from Written After Massacre in the year 2018 and is titled the same thing. It is the end of the afternoon and the sky will soon be purple, but right now the desert light is orange and pink and the painter is able to illustrate how one side of the cage is in shadow and the other is in sun. The toddler in the painting looks exactly like the living toddler in the cage, only the one on the canvas is naked, but for a disposable diaper that sits high on its waist. The one in the cage is wrapped in a red wool blanket. On the canvas, in the background, there are pencil drawings of bodies scattered in the distant sand. They are the bodies of the disappeared, says the painter to the journalists who are already speculating about the amount of money the painting will sell for when in the morning it is taken to auction. The bureaucrats have brought me to the border to identify bodies, but I can't understand why they don't know that I am dead. They say, we need you to verify the identity of your comrades. When we leave the toddler's cage, I am taken to the sand dump to name the corpses of my friends. I begin to state their names, Daniel, Jose, Miriam, etc. But I am quickly silenced because the bureaucrats understand that if I identify too many missing bodies, then there will be certain obligations that the law requires them to meet. Someone whispers, the name of your friends are not the names of your friends, and those bodies do not belong to their bodies. Wow, that was such a treat. It's just so great to get to sit in the presence of a mind like Daniel. Yeah, you know? yeah. I feel like I got a lot of permission to sort of uh, return to some of like the urgencies in the world that mm-hmm. I feel like I put on hold in my work. Yeah. yeah. I love the thing that he said about acknowledging poets who acknowledge there are particular fires that the world is on, you yeah. know? Mm-hmm. Um, 
what fires do you feel like you are kind of like attending to hmm. in your work these days? Like, yeah. is there like a particular one? Well, um, now that I turn this book in, I kind of feel rather workless. In the little like playful writings I've been doing, I think it's this continued investigation about just like friendship and different ways of like how inti- intimacy looks, especially mm-hmm. like how can intimacy amongst marginalized folks and their allies look like mm-hmm. and sort of like how can we like think about love without it being at risk from the rest of the world. Mm. But I do feel like a particular like fire that I was tending to or really trying to extinguish or like mm, make mm-hmm. um has been like, you know, sort of just, you know, the continued um state of like black people in America. Um and how that has manifested itself in different ways um across time. And I think when I went into writing this new collection that was so much about friendship and even though some of those themes are there, I really I think put some of like my more upfront, in-your-face political work that was addressing that to the side. Hmm. Um, And even just in talking to Daniel right now, I really felt like I need to pick back up that charge. Hmm. Um, And I think there's a lot of poems that I've been avoiding out of fear of, like, cheapening it Hmm. or making it look, I don't know, of just, like, messing it up in the wrong way or, like, Hmm. maybe I've done it already. And I think it's okay to continue to point at the fire and say it's Hmm. burning. Yeah. Yeah. How about you? I don't really know. I also am sort of, like, in between projects a mm-hmm. little bit. But I think a thing that has been showing up in my poems is climate change. Mm-hmm. Like, it's less about drawing attention to it and more about, like, me trying to process grief mm-hmm. around the earth, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. I don't know if my poems are trying to point to it in some of the same ways that necessarily Daniel's mm-hmm. Are I think it's just like approaching it to try to like figure out like what am I feeling in the context of this mm-hmm. fire, you're not like, like the, putting it out. Yeah, you're like that dog meme, but you're like sitting in a burning house and it's like it's not fine. Yeah, or it's like it's fine, and then it's the next panel is just me being like, what does that say about me that I thought that? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's what it is. That's the the fire that's, yeah. that I'm attending to right now. Self reflective fire dog. Yeah, yeah, yeah. self reflective uh, fire dog, Penny. Francis yeah, okay. Choi. Ooh, gotta save that one for another intro. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> should we um, say some thank yous and skedaddle out out of here? Yeah, let's okay. do it. Speaking of fire, I would like to thank Duraflame. <laughs> The fire starting logs because sometimes a bitch can't get the fire started and Mm. needs to use the log and has to emasculate herself by using the log Mm. even though she didn't want to buy it Mm. Mm -hmm. because she could start a fire Mm -hmm. but she Mm -hmm. can't. Mm -hmm. I like that. I like that. I would like to thank firemen um, Mm. for being the one uniform I don't associate with racism. Wow. (laughs) Oh man, oh man, is that not true. So thank you firemen and strippers who dress up as firemen across the nation. And the fire festival. Thank you. Just kidding. (laughs) Just kidding. JK. JK. Thank you to the Poetry Foundation. Thank you to Post Loudness. Thank you, Idalmi Noriega, and to our producer, Daniel Kisslinger, and to you for listening. Make sure you follow us on social media, on Facebook and Twitter, at BS The Podcast. Make sure to comment and like if the avenue that you're listening to this on allows you to do that. Shout out to (laughs) y'all listening to it on the Poetry Foundation website. Um, And please, 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 uh, you know, tell your friends. Holler at us on Twitter. Let us know what you think. Share with us, you know, your good recipes. And make sure you look out for (laughs) Um, my water festival that I am organizing (laughs) with 50 Cent (laughs) coming to a scam near you sometime soon. (laughs) Water spelled Mm W-A-T-Y-R. Water Water. Water Water. 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 Tears you will shed um, when (laughs) I steal your money. Uh, (laughs) Mm, Love cheese on bread. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Not even that. These niggas cheese and crackers. All right, y'all. This joke has gone too far and we will see you later. Goodbye. Bye.